Media at SAFM with Ashraf Gardner. Well, good morning indeed. So it's two hours of uh, brand communications, marketing, journalistic issues. All of that will be discussed or so anything that communicates really for the next two hours. And you can call in anytime relevant to the subject, 0891104207. If you do want to call in and get something off your chest, short, sharp calls, most appreciated anyway. You can also SMS me to 34701, 34701. That will cost you two rands. You can tweet at Ashraf Garda. You can post comments on my Facebook page as well. And do the same for SFM Radio on Facebook as well as on Twitter. Lots to come. We'll talk about the lots later on. Let's, however, start with silly the big issue for now, which is, Journalists, uh, you know, covering conflicts so or conflict reporting. There are many issues around it. The one, of course, just um, why, in fact, do they do it? Just a personal choice in terms of the, the, the big thrill out of that, getting the story out there. The other, of course, there's safety. Uh, and, and how come, in so often, in many cases, they are harmed by, you know, uh, various forces in, in those countries, whatever they are. Issues then around uh, their uh, safety in terms of training as well may well come up. All of that we'll, disco- we'll discuss uh, for the next uh, 20 minutes or so. I've got three guests. Janine Kritzer with me, executive producer of, uh, for the English Desk at uh, the SABC Channel Africa. Janine, good chatting to you. Hi. Good morning. Hi. Good morning, indeed. We also have Eric Miller, the photojournalist, and also done lots of reporting uh, in conflict regions around the world, including Rwanda amongst many others. Eric, good chatting to you. Hi. Morning. Hi, Ashraf. Good. And we also have Professor Anton Harbour with us, Claxton Professor of Journalism and Media Studies, as well as Director of uh, Journalism, the Journalism Program, that is, at uh, Virtual University. Professor Harbour, good chatting to you once again. Hi. Good morning. Good morning, indeed. Right. Eric, I'm, I'm going to start with you, in fact, because, I mean, you've done lots of, uh, besides other things, including the South African election, but, but more specifically issues around covering conflict in Rwanda and, and, uh, and Sudan. What's it been like for you as a journalist, as a photojournalist, covering, uh, getting the stories out from those areas? Ashraf, I think that um, the situation has changed quite a lot for photojournalists covering conflicts in the last decade uh, compared to when I was working in Rwanda or Sudan or, or areas like that, or even in South Africa in the 1980s. Um, it's, I think, has become a lot more dangerous. There are a lot more uh, journalists covering and a lot less experienced journalists. When I worked uh, in Sudan, in Rwanda, in Sierra Leone during the 1990s, I very often worked with um, United Nations uh, bodies, with World Health Organization, with various other, with Red Cross and that sort of thing. So there was very often a framework and a structure that I worked within and with other journalists who were experienced journalists and journalists who were professional journalists. And I think some of that has changed, and that I'm sure will come up in, in, in part of the conversation as we go along. Okay, that has changed. Janine Kutzer, you just, uh, well, you've done the work in, uh, for the SABC in Somalia, Syria very recently, right? What is it like? Because that conflict is ongoing. Yeah. Um, I've been very uh, lucky in both instances with um, Somalia in 2011 and um, earlier this year in Syria. I went, as my colleague mentioned, worked in a very structured framework. Mm. I went as part of a humanitarian response with a group called Gift of the Givers. Um, we had serious protection from government forces, huge guns in Somalia. But, I mean, anything can still happen. Mm-hmm. You're, you're a huge group. We know that there are car bombs. It's a regular thing in Somalia. But we were very much protected and worked in a structured way. In Syria, um, we saw more the effects of war because, again, we worked in a, in a fairly safe place about 40 kilometers from the front line um, in northern Idlib um, in a hospital. Um, they were fighting nearby. We heard it. We were also, well, we were under now in, in rebel control 
controlled area, so you know we were we, we were actually protected by, by one side of the conflict, okay. <laughs> which I um, assume can also put you in danger because you're the target, you were the so-called enemy. Um, but we were protected because they looked after us all the time, and we were uh, never really very close to the front line, but we saw the very bad effects of war. Okay, and I wonder why would the rebels protect you, because that's the issue. It's all about getting the story out, isn't it? Professor Anton Harbour, of course, what, what are your thoughts? This, of course, in the light of the uh, UN Security Council meeting just fairly recently on the protection of, of journalists. Just, just your thoughts overall? I think there's a real concern that um, the number of journalists who are being killed in conflict is, uh, remains very serious, very high. There's been uh, over 900 journalists killed since 1992, not all of those in war conflict situations, many of them in confused and uncertain situations. And one must realize that um, journalists in many situations um, are extremely vulnerable in conflict situations, in situations um, of, of crime, such as in places like Mexico, where there's a high incidence of kind of drug uh, lords um, um, killing journalists, um, and journalists vulnerable to state action as well. A lot of journalists are being killed or in prison because of state action um, outside, outside directly of conflict, such as in Ethiopia. So it's an extremely hazardous situation. One of the things that's made it more difficult is that, you know, we used to have a notion of a professional journalist that was identifiable, worked for a newsroom, as uh, Eric has said. But nowadays, with uh, blogging and with social media, the difference between a journalist and an ordinary citizen is blurred. So who is entitled to protection and entitled to any sort of... Um, and special attention. Mm -hmm. uh, these are difficult issues. That, that's an important issue. I mean, Eric, Eric, your thoughts in terms of when you covered, you know, conflict zones, uh, and and again, when this role of, of who the journalist is and, and not, or the, or the activist journalist, let's call it that, uh, has been blurred. I mean, have you had experiences like that where, even if it is not so for you, you could see that and therefore put you at at, at, at risk. You know, in the times that I've worked in, in the 1990s. Um, I, in general, most of the journalists that I worked with and came across were what Anton refers to as professional journalists. Mm -hmm. They were not <clears throat> the bloggers and the, um, the social, um, you know, the people who went there for the excitement. I did come across occasionally, in, in Rwanda certainly, I met a couple of people who had heard about what was happening, uh, who were not professional photographers and who just arrived there almost as, as uh, war tourists. And I think that that has grown exponentially with, with uh, the growth of uh, social media and the Internet. So, for example, if you look in Syria at the moment and the number of people who have been killed there, a large number of those people are freelancers. Um, a significant proportion of, of the deaths there are freelancers, and I suspect that many of them are just local people who see an opportunity to earn a living, to, to, to mm -hmm. uh, make some money uh, in a legitimate way, uh, to, to try and go out there and cover the story, either because they're passionate about it or because it's their own neighborhood, but they're not trained and they're not experienced and they're not professional journalists connected to big organizations that can afford some protection to them. Well, the question really is just what level of protection do they need? Now, Janine Kutzer made the point when she went to Somalia uh, with the gift of the givers and then uh, Syria recently, there was a high degree of protection anyway. It doesn't mean they're not at risk, but there was a, there was a sense of relative uh, safety. I mean, you, you would say that, right? Sense of relative safety. And yet you gave me the, the points of air uh, that, that, you know, many Somalians who are killed, you know, outside of conflict uh, issues. Right? I, I just read 
before I came here, um, one of the people that spoke in the UN um, this past week mentioned mm. that five out of six of the many journalists killed. Um, Anton referred to uh, about 900 since 1992. But, I mean, we know that Somalia and Syria are the countries mentioned as having the biggest rate of journalists killed. But five mm. out of six are killed in their own hometowns. Yeah, you know, yeah. um, it's not in, in, in war zones. So I think the risk for journalists in whichever form remains. And I, th- I think you may well be referring to Mustafa Haji Abid uh, now who spoke at, the, at that UN Security Council meeting and he said something like this, you know, when a journalist, uh, when a journalist is killed, the news dies, dies too. And I think it's, it's, it's just so poignant indeed. Uh, the question that maybe to, to Anton Harbour is, uh, in, in your thoughts in terms of what the United Nations is doing or is not doing regarding the protection of, of journalists? Um, well, certainly they're looking into ways of giving greater protection to journalists. Uh, journalists are dealt with in the Geneva Convention um, that, that governs the rules of war. Um, but, you know, that is quite old now. And as we're hearing, technology and the changes in journalism means that some of that is not keeping pace. Um, um, I think that it's, it's, it's very important to look at the possibility of, um, of identifying and um, creating rules around journalists as much as possible, of renewing them. I think what you never hear about is the prosecution of people um, responsible for the killing of journalists. Yeah. Um, I think the, the, these are difficult issues. I'm not suggesting they're simple, but I do think it would be valuable for world bodies like the United Nations to, to look into ways in which they can make it at greater cost. I mean, I, I think you have to emphasize um, the extraordinary important um, role journalists do play in war, in letting us know what is happening, what should be happening, what shouldn't be happening, um, how much worse situations of conflict would be if they don't have the watching eye of journalists to tell the war is happening, and the incredible courage of many, many journalists who uh, risk their lives and risk their mental health and risk their futures to go and tell the world what is happening in conflict situations. Indeed. Yeah, it involves uh, acts of extraordinary bravery. Well, maybe, Alec Muller, you can give me your thoughts. I mean, when you actually work that beat, you, why did you do so? Well, um... I did it because partly it was my job, I was hired to do that, and partly because of a commitment to cover some of the things that were happening. So, for example, Rwanda in 1994, when our elections had kind of almost moved on and towards the end of the, the genocide, it was the biggest story that was happening in the world, and it was a particularly horrifying story. And I felt very driven to go there and to cover that story. I went with uh, Danish and, and uh, British colleagues and covering it for their publications. So there was a drive as well to kind of, and, and that's what's driven my work for all the, all the decades that I've been working as a photojournalist is to document what has been happening so that that goes out into mm-hmm. the world. So, you know, I was in Rwanda because I was there with uh, Danish and German and, and British colleagues, um, and I felt it very necessary to cover that, despite the fact that it had already got a lot of coverage. Right, let me, let me invite your uh, opinion as well, public opinion, if you wish to 
join the conversation. You certainly can do so. I see a couple of people tweeting. Uh, 0891104207. 0891104207 if you're SMSing me. If you are tweeting, it's at Ashraf Garda, but you certainly can call into 0891104207. So 3471 is the SMS number. Now, now Janine, could you just that same question? When you were called to go to, uh, or, you know, or invited, maybe yeah. that's the right word, to Somalia and then Syria? Somal- Somalia was an interesting one. My radio station, Channel Africa, focuses on African affairs. Mm. And um, without Gift of the Givers, probably I wouldn't have had the chance to go. But what was wonderful about Somalia, that there were two trips. It just so happened that they went, came back, and, and went again. And it was a fantastic opportunity to see what was really on going on. We were only in Mogadishu, but, you know, radio, I love telling the story, people's mm. voices, mm. and the sounds of, of um, people's need, how sad it might be. So it was a fantastic opportunity. Syria, when that came, I mean, Syria, I think, in um, nowadays is seen as one of the biggest humanitarian catastrophes around the world. Mm, mm, it was, again, a chance to go and look at the humanitarian response um, where Gift of the Givers went to and which we were part of was the only hospital in a huge radius in, in northern Idlib um, because hospitals in that specific war uh, were targets bombed and schools. So there was a huge need and it was a fantastic chance to report on exactly that. And I must just say, I said earlier on, we were in area controlled by so-called mm, rebels. Mm, mm, you know, mm, for mm. me, the, the term <laughs> rebel became a bit blurred. Because the people that I saw, and I'm so, simply talking about myself, my colleague who was in Rwanda and other places could maybe differ or, or also shed light, or Dr. Alver. Um, these were just normal people. The, 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 the area is attacked by the so-called enemy. It was very difficult for me to call those people rebels. Uh, it's, it's a difficult situation. You were in so-called rebel-controlled mm-hmm. enemy, but they were normal people. It could have been you, my brother, my father, somebody's but, but, cousin. But, but, a, did you, did you feel at risk when you undertook that journey did you actually say as many would say or certainly your family would say are you mad now both my brothers who were in a previous era both of them were in the military they said don't go a bullet doesn't have a name on it but you know um, it was earlier said that uh, mature journalists maybe handle things differently I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not 22 anymore <laughs> so, so you understand the value of being the, the ear on the ground of course may I come in here yes, yes just give me but, okay, sorry, go sorry ahead to yeah. I want to ask you a, 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 what I think is a very very relevant question, which is that did you get any training, advice, guidance on entering into a conflict situation? Because I think the key thing that can happen is that news institutions can take more care to ensure journalists are trained and instructed and guided and equipped to deal with conflict that, that's, a, that's a good point. In fact, it's a point I was going to bring up as well, because I, mean, I certainly no. watched a few journalists even last week, I think on ETV, in fact, saying many journalists die not because they're being targeted directly, but, but when there's a spillover of, of a conflict, right? So don't they know don't react. know how to handle themselves. They're, no. not, they, they're not from the army. So the responsibility then on the media houses that send them. I well, think let, it's let's a responsibility, but I mean, I wasn't trained. Um, but, but again, maybe it's because I've been in the field for many years. I've traveled Africa, not for, for war zones, but I've been around. I don't know. No, I didn't get any okay. training. Whether it's because they think you're overqualified, I would think not. I just think it's a case of it's not being discussed. Eric Miller, your thoughts? Training? Safety training? Yes. I, think, I think that in, in terms of what's happening at the moment and various um, revolutions and, and conflicts that are happening at the moment, it's, it's essential. But it also, and, and there are courses that, that uh, provide training, hostile environment training, but they are really only available to people who can afford them. So people are working for the big media companies. Mm. So for, for freelancers, it's extremely difficult uh, to access these. 
And I imagine that a large number of the people in some of the countries where freelancers are dying don't even know about the training. Yes. So, yes, I, I agree with Anton that there ought to be, and that uh, the big media houses ought to be providing it, and there ought to be a way of looking at providing that kind of training for freelance people, because there are a lot of people who are covering the news and supplying news to, to the big media organizations who are working freelance. Okay, we've just that's the voice of Eric Miller. We also have, who is a photojournalist, we also have Janine Kutzer, who is an executive producer for the English task at uh, the SABC's Channel Africa, which broadcasts, uh, uh, I think, uh, well, predominantly to the African continent, but you can also catch it on streaming audio too. And we have Professor Anton Harbour with us, who's the Caxton Professor of Journalism and Media Studies, as well as Director of the Journalism Program at uh, Virtual University. Professor Harbour, your thoughts on that, you know, if, if, if we're raising the issue of safety, so it, it appears even just picking up from the two guests here, that there's really no protocol. I mean, should we get to a situation where, whether it's the UN or in this case, say, South Africa, that no journalist that goes to any conflict zone can even go without having that passport, the safety passport? Well, that would be, that would be difficult. But certainly no journalist who gets sent by a major news organization should go without certain equipment, certain training, the availability of counseling thereafter, and um, just to take a local example, I mean, uh, journalists from here, are, not many of them are going into conflict situations. Um, but, you know, journalists here have to often deal with the trauma of crime. And uh, I think it's relevant to ask, um, how many are trained? How many are offered counseling? Mm, 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 um, um, these things can do a lot of harm, a lot of damage, and, um, and news organizations need to take responsibility for their staff in those kinds of ways. So, so, in fact, what you're saying, I mean, normal crime in South Africa uh, happens. There's also lots of conflict. I mean, I'm just looking at the issue of uh, the economic freedom uh, fighters uh, with the ANC Youth League a few days ago at UJ, and, and uh, they were chased off by the Youth League, uh, that's the EFF, uh, with, with hockey sticks. So if you're a journalist covering that, in fact, you are in a conflict zone, right, Anton? You are, and there should be a set of rules and protocols that apply to the journalists and to the authorities and should be um, held up to the public. Um, so I think developing rules and protocols around this, um, training of journalists on, on what they should or shouldn't do in such situations, um, critical is for the authorities, like the police and security guards, to know and understand the role and the rights and the need to protect journalists. Well, the question is, do they in fact do that? I don't know. Nicholas uh, commenting, saying we must protect them because they're our ears and, uh, and eyes. Uh, and I think our government must come up with something to protect them, but I doubt that happening because our government is also involved in, in conflicts. You see, that brings me to, to the other issue. And Eric, I want to get your thoughts on this one. In terms of the blurring and the point that Janine made, she was with the, with the rebels. You know, one person's rebel is the other person's freedom fight, and we know that all the time. So how much of a problem is that where these various forces in conflict will accommodate you to be close to them because they think you're okay to justify their agenda, which is, to, which is to send out the news. Others may feel differently about you, but have other journalists in their favor. Let's call it embedded journalism. Just say the last part again, Ashraf. I said, let's, let's, let's call that embedded journalism, that whether it's intended or unintended, they would accommodate you because they think you can further their agenda. Um. You know, in Sudan, I worked, uh, when I worked in South Sudan, I worked with the SPLA, the Sudan Sudanese People's Liberation Army, who at the, right now are the government of Sudan, but at that time they were the rebels. I, I didn't consider it embedded journalism because there was no uh, pressure from them to report anything in terms of what they, they didn't have any vetting rights, they didn't have any rights to, uh, to check whatever it is that we covered or wrote or, or, or published. Um, 
So it's a very it's a thin line. I understand that uh, there's certain contexts where you are required, where people are expected to toe the line. But I also think that it's a pragmatic thing. You work in a situation in a way that is safe. You take a risk, and it's a, a calculated risk, and you work with this particular group because they are able to facilitate your work in that particular area. Um, when Janine goes in with, with gifted the givers, she's within that context, and it's relatively protected, the same as when I go in with um, the World Food Organization or one of the other NGOs that are working in that area. So I think that it's not necessarily a bad thing if you're working within a particular context where you're under the uh, protection of the rebels uh, or, or any particular group, but there is a thin line between that and when they impose a particular editorial viewpoint on you. Janine, it, it, uh, your thoughts on that? Did you ever feel you, you were embedded? Absolutely not. And for the simple reason that, I mean, we've been in a town, but the town was uh, part of a huge region um, that was under the so-called uh, rebel opposition control. And they never, ever interfered. I mean, that's the, the area we could have uh, written and done anything we wanted to. But again, we didn't really write politics because we were there for the humanitarian side of it. And um, I never, ever felt um, that we had to toe a certain line. Uh, right, I'll, I'll get a, another comment from one of the listeners. Oh, at nine one one zero four two zero seven. Very important issue: the issue of journalists covering conflicts or conflict uh, reporters uh, and the dynamics that that come through with that. Professor Harbour, your thoughts on that? The, the issue of embedded journalists, intended or unintended? Well, it's difficult and complicated. Uh, there are situations where journalists can't go in without um, riding with one side in the conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, it's better when journalists can cover things independently without any ties or strings. But that's uh, not always possible, and so there's realistic situations where one has to accept the protection um, of one side in a conflict. Mm. And, and what, what, what do you think South Africa should be doing as, as a country with regard to conflict reporting? Well, I think that, um, um, for, you know, uh, we've talked about various things that can be done around the safety of journalists. Mm. Um, I think we should be pushing for international rules and protocols. I think we should be looking at issues of training um, uh, for journalists dealing with all sorts of um, uh, conflict and violent situations. Um, I think equipment is often critical. I mean, journalists need certain safety equipment when they go into violent situations, um, and we need to think about that. Mm. We certainly know about South African journalists, you know, killed in, in Libya and, and many others around the world as well that we may or not, not be aware of, of other people as well. I mean, Eric, when, when you sort of covered that beat, did, did you find you were short of, of something and you actually wish it was addressed and it still hasn't been addressed? Well, I was certainly short of, um, and, and as Denise says, she learned as she went along and I learned as I went along. I never received any training. I never went to any hostile environment training programs that a lot of journalists are able to go on. Um, and in the aftermath of places like Rwanda, I certainly uh, needed some kind of emotional assistance afterwards. Uh, it, it, it was psychologically devastating to be mm-hmm. there and to see what was happening and to cover that. So, and, and I think Anton touched earlier on the issue that journalists, even locally covering, covering crime and mm-hmm. local rights and local issues, are seriously in need of that kind of support as well, and I'm not sure to what extent they're receiving it. Mm. Did you receive it then? You said you were in need. Did you actually get it? I only got it on my own. Uh, There was no structural or, or you know, there were no employers who were providing counseling or psychotherapy or 
support or any of that sort of thing. It was it was what I had to get on my own bat. Okay, Janine, could say you? Um, I didn't feel. I'm sorry, Eric. I but I wasn't in the same situation yes, as you. Um, I was fine when I came back. But I know that the SABC do offer that. Right. Um, uh, when we came back from Somalia, I know some people went for counselling. Uh, it was uh, made available to them. And I remember even many years ago when some of our colleagues um, uh, covered Iraq, uh, the facility uh, was there. Interesting, yeah. All right, maybe just time. Uh, the, the, somebody tried to call some off the topic, so let's just leave that for, for the moment. Uh, Professor Harbour, now, now what about the, the thought that often journalists get to an area, and I'm not talking about embedded, but they then reflect war zones or war issues, war stories, purely from their own prism, and, and therefore you get two or three different sides to that story. Egypt currently is, is a good, good example of that. Well, I think um, uh, I think you can't expect a journalist to go in, especially to a conflict situation, and um, and pretend they have no emotions and no feelings and no affiliations and no history. Um, I think the critical thing is that truth is served when we when we have all and many different perspectives of a war that are out there competing. Uh, for versions of what happened and that we're able to piece that together and understand what happened. So having as much coverage, as wider coverage from every element, every side, is what one, um, one really wants. Mm. Uh, uh, Arith- Ashraf, there, there's, yeah. there's just one other thing we haven't touched on. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a South African photographer killed in Libya last year. Exactly. Mm. Um, and, and an issue is, uh, you know, you know um, their families left behind, mm-hmm. their children left behind. Um, and having ways uh, in which um, to uh, to ensure they're not left destitute um, is a is a critical element as well. And, and who should address that? You know, would it be the government because the person's going on his own vo- uh, volition? However, effectively, he's a citizen of South Africa, or, or should it be you know the organisation that that sends him or her? Well, I think there's a huge responsibility, and it's almost always recognised as it was in this case, I believe. Uh, by the organization they're working for. But, of course, if you freelance, uh, then you have less protection. Um, um, and that's, that's obviously a, 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 a high-risk factor. In this case, many colleagues have got together. Um, there's been attempts to, to, to raise money to assist the children, for example. Um, so um, colleagues usually come together and do it. But what's really needed is some kind of... Um, Fund and, and there, there are some funds, but some mm-hmm. kind of really substantial fund um, uh, to, ass- to to assist to protect journalists and uh, to to assist mm-hmm. their families. And I, I, I think that's certainly a very good point. Maybe it's, a, it's an issue we'll probably raise even next week and find out what has happened uh, to the family in, in that case. There, right? Just final words on Eric Muller. Just your last your last comment. Um, you know, one thing also that hasn't really been touched on, but mm. Anton has alluded to, we, we have a lot of conflict that happens in this country. Mm-hmm. It's not an international conflict. It's not a war zone per se, but there are a lot of local conflicts where journalists get caught up and journalists get targeted. And I have a concern that uh, from the point of view of many politicians, there's not enough support about what journalists are doing. In fact, quite the contrary. You know, when, when politicians talk about um, packs of journalists gunning down their their targets and their prey in the media, it, it doesn't create a very positive or supportive um, atmosphere in the, in the general public to be left behind. Um, and having ways uh, in which um, to, uh, to ensure they're not left destitute um, is, a, is a critical element as well. And, and who should address that? You know, would it be 
the government because the person's going on his own vo- uh, volition. However, effectively, he's a citizen of South Africa, or, or should it be, you know, the organization that, that sends him or her? Well, I think there's a huge responsibility, and it's almost always recognized, as it was in this case, I believe, uh, by the organization they're working for. But, of course, if you freelance, uh, then you have less protection. Um, um, and that's, that's obviously a, 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 a high-risk factor. In this case, many colleagues have got together. Um, there's been attempts to, to, to raise money to assist the children, for example. Um, so um, colleagues usually come together and do it, but what's really needed is some kind of um, fund, and, and there, there are some funds, but mm-hmm. some kind of really substantial fund um, uh, to, ass- to, to assist, to protect journalists, and uh, to, to assist their families. I, I think that's certainly a very good point. Maybe it's, a, it's an issue we'll probably raise even next week and find out what has happened uh, to the family in, in that case there. Right, just final words on Eric Muller, just your last, your last comment. Um, you know, one thing also that hasn't really been touched on, but mm. Anton has alluded to, we, we have a lot of conflict that happens in this country. Mm-hmm. It's not an international conflict, it's not a war zone per se, but there are a lot of local conflicts where journalists get caught up and journalists get targeted. And I have a concern that uh, from the point of view of many politicians, there's not enough support about what journalists are doing. And in fact, quite the contrary. You know, when, when politicians talk about um, packs of journalists gunning down their, their targets and their prey in the media, it, it doesn't create a very positive or supportive um, atmosphere in the, in the general public towards journalists. And they become targeted when they go into communities. So I would like to see local politicians and, local, uh, and, and more support locally of the work that journalists are doing in these communities. Last, uh, Janine, your final thoughts. Um, my final thought is the question which I hope that maybe another program you could address. I'm really sorry that there wasn't time to maybe ask Professor Harbour about that. I would just like to know this whole discussion in the UN and in practicality. Mm-hmm. What kind of things will protect us? I personally don't think rules and regulations on paper, international humanitarian law as enshrined in the Geneva Conventions. Even us wearing a badge saying, don't shoot me, I'm a journalist. I don't know. I would like to hear what practical things can be done to make life safer because I'm too practical to think that any of these things. <laughs> let, let me ask, really let, let's just get Anton Harbour to respond to that. I mean, what, what Janine's saying, I mean, there's the reality of, of resolutions, but, but how then does the resolutions get filtered through in practical terms? Um, yes. Uh, I mean, in, I, mean I, I, I wouldn't um, downplay the importance of uh, international protocols, international rules, because those do set norms and standards, even if further action is required to implement them. But it's important to set those standards and, and try and make those international rules as, 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 as the background. Um, I would have thought that, um, um, uh, for example, you could think about the obligation of states to ensure their authorities, their soldiers, their police, uh, their security people understand the roles and rights in journalists, for example. Um, and making that an obligation of states would be of enormous help. Um, but I do think, um, I, you know, I, 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 I guess you're saying a lot of responsibility does lie with journalists and journalist organizations um, to work around this.
Okay, and let's see what uh, our journalists or their organizations respond. Thanks so much for your time. That's Professor Anton Haber. Uh, appreciate your input, Janine Kutzer, as well, as well as Eric Miller. Really important issue, fascinating. And if you want to further the discussion, uh, if not on the air, certainly off the air, I'm happy to uh, get your views. I'll read them when I get away, which is just via email, ashrafedsafm.coza. Otherwise, you can post comments on Facebook and Twitter. That's on my personal pages, as well as the SAFM radio uh, personal pages. We'll be chatting in a minute, uh, well, in a few minutes' time, about the Halls Clean Kinney rapper ad uh, that's of make your move I wonder what your thoughts are about uh, that particular advert but uh, before that there's a new project an SABC3 project about the 21 icons have you heard about it well you will right after this